See, the problem with every introduction is living up to it, you know? Well, like there we go. Simon's story. There we go. <laughs> so, as I approached my talk today, I realized this would be a difficult talk to keep simple because there's nothing about Whitehead that seems to be simple. He, was, uh, he created vocabulary. He also used current vocabulary, and it seemed to stretch the meanings a bit to include his model. And for me, being a Buddhist and having not heard of uh, process reality or process theology in any specific way, it was an interesting investigation. Um, and also to see the similarities and differences that uh, Buddhism uh, offers. So I think one of the main differences to start out with is the problem of God. Now, people who understand Buddhism consider it to be a non-theistic religion. Uh, the Buddha believed in the gods of India, uh, and, and that didn't end uh, when he became enlightened or achieved nirvana. Uh, the gods were still important, but to me, the one thing he realized the gods couldn't do was end human suffering. So he took it upon himself, a human being, to see uh, where suffering came from and to see if there was an answer to the suffering. So now we're faced with this dilemma in 2015 when in America a lot of people believe in God. In the uh, Pledge of Allegiance, it was added in the 1950s as a, uh, to define ourselves differently from communism. And we also find it on our money. So God is everywhere in America, and now the Christians say to Buddhists, well, what do you guys believe? And, and I think we, a lot of Buddhists I've met believe in God, uh, but don't use that model to end their suffering, and there are a few Buddhists who don't believe in God. And, and that has nothing to do with Buddhism. That seems to be more a personal interpretation. And then a lot of Buddhists just don't care one way or the other, and I think that probably includes most Buddhists. So, so when Whitehead put God into his model, uh, I, the feeling I had about that was that it, he, he was feeling guilty because God wasn't included yet. So God became part of the process. And if everything's in process and if God is part of the process, it sort of makes sense. But my vision of God is the old guy with the big beard and the throne who wasn't very happy with how I acted as a kid. So... Uh, uh, the process is a little bit easier to understand. Now, we have something in Buddhism um, uh, called the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is an amazing document because it really captures non-dual awareness. And, and it, it's an old document, and in every Mahayana monastery, temple, center, around the world is chanted every day. That's how important it is. So what I'd like to do is take it apart just a little bit and, and give you an idea of, of how Buddhism came to sort of a non-dual awareness and was able to talk about it in a negative rather than a positive, what it wasn't rather than what it is. And, and, that, and that's an Indian philosophical uh, technique as well. I never quite saying what it is, but always saying what it isn't. So the Buddha was asked, what is nirvana? And, and then he would say, well, what do you think it is? And he would say, not that, not this. And 
ultimately, at the end of the conversation, the person describing nirvana gave up. I, I've, I've given you everything I can think of. And the Buddha would say, the one thing you didn't think of is what it is. <laughs> and, and so he was, he was uh, clever. And, and, of course, that's the whole idea, I think, about non-dual awareness. It's, we can't speak in a relative manner about something that's ultimate. We can point at it, and those words are pointing at it, but those words are not defining it. So it's a short... Has everybody heard the Heart Sutra before? We, Heart Sutra? I don't think I have. Okay, good. I may, have once I, I may recognize it once I hear it. Okay. Have you heard it before? Same, sir. Same, sir? Okay. Well, uh, this is our version. Now, uh, our version meaning our, the center where I live. This is the version we use. And uh, each center will have uh, perhaps a few words that are different. Um, and, and that's okay. Uh, because the Buddha was a human, not godlike. So it has been edited and revised over the centuries. So it's called the Mahaprajna Paramita Heart Sutra, the Great Wisdom Sutra, and the heart, the heart of the matter. What's this all about? And and to set it up, I let me let me do it this way. In in Theravada Buddhism, early Buddhism, the orthodox approach to Nirvana, um, the idea was to achieve Nirvana. The idea was to be an arahant. An arahant is someone who has a teacher, listens to the teaching does the practice, and realizes their nirvana. Now, what separates the Buddha from an arahant is the Buddha did not have a teacher. According to early Buddhism, Theravada, there were 27 Buddhas before him. He was the 28th Buddha on earth. The teachings of those previous Buddhas had been lost to the world. He rediscovered them. He rediscovered them, and through his own effort, compassion, and wisdom, realized his perfection in nirvana. Then, for 45 years, he taught what he did. It was, an empirical, it was an empirical view of the world. This is what I have come to know is true. This is what I did to achieve my freedom, my release from suffering. And he never told us we needed to do it, or we should do it, or we could do it. He said, this is what I did. So he gave us permission to walk away at any time which is something I found very attractive. In Mahayana Buddhism, first century, the reform movement, these, these are the Protestants of Buddhism now. And they said, no, you know, uh, it's just going out and achieving nirvana to end your suffering is a very selfish way to live in the world, to look at it. All the other sentient beings are suffering. You need to postpone your release from suffering, your freedom, until they have been saved. It's called the bodhisattva ideal. It's a pretty amazing concept. And so what they did is they said, we do not want to be arahants. We are not going to do what the Buddha said to do. We are going to do what the Buddha did. We are all going to become Buddhas. Now, for me, when I first came upon this, I thought, how can that be the case? There's only one Buddha at a time on earth. And if all these people are waiting to become Buddhas themselves, they're going to have a very long wait. But then it comes up in the sutras that they have dust motes. A dust mote is a whole universe. That little flickering thing 
that falls through the sunlight is a universe. And they need a Buddha too. So we need a whole lot of Buddhas to line up and be part of all these different universes. So in, rather than being an arhat, rather than being someone who achieves nirvana, they want to be a bodhisattva, someone who achieves enlightenment. Now, I was stuck because in reading, they used nirvana and enlightenment in interchangeable ways. And I'm thinking, but it's not the same thing. So what would my definition of nirvana be and what would my definition of enlightenment be? My definition of nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, the end of all future rebirths. My definition of enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. Does enlightenment end your suffering? No, it doesn't. Does enlightenment end your rebirth cycle? No, it doesn't. In fact, when you become a bodhisattva and take the bodhisattva vows, you are taking them forever. You vow to reappear as a human time and time again to be of service to all humans and sentient beings until finally the last one is saved and then you will be saved. You will achieve your nirvana. So it's a process that will ultimately never end. Can you repeat your two definitions again? I'd be glad to. So my definition of nirvana is the end of suffering, the end of karma, and the end of all future rebirth. Now why are those two things important? Um, we have an issue with soul, and so did Whitehead apparently. Because soul can be interpreted as being independent and unchanging. And it doesn't work in, in process, because everything has to change. And here we have this concept of a soul that stands apart and is reborn time and time again in the Indian tradition until all the lessons have been learned. And then it migrates to the great mothership, the great soul. And the peace is connected. See how that works? We all carry a peace. So the Buddha said, you know, this is philosophically... Um, a problem because if you believe in a soul, you believe in eternalism. And in eternalism, you may have a couple lifetimes down the road where you don't take that particular lifetime seriously. And you may kill and rape and steal and figure, I'll make up for it in the next ten lifetimes. <laughs> so he saw that as a big philosophical, moral issue. He also said, if there is no soul, if there is no soul, and when we die, we just feed the trees, then what does it matter what we do? Sort of a nihilistic approach. What does it matter? There's, there's, no, there's no consequence. So, so the Buddha came up with this sort of middle path approach. There may be a soul, but it's in process, and it's not who you are. Now, how are humans born? It is said that a human is born with karmic energy, a sperm, and an egg. Because we don't have the soul that migrates, we have karmic energy that migrates. So in nirvana, we end our karma, which is the karmic energy that migrates from lifetime to lifetime, and we also end all future rebirths because of the end of karma. Now, in high school... 
when I give a presentation, they say, well, so the whole idea of Buddhism is not to exist. You live many, many lifetimes, help many, many people, do many, many practices, so you don't have to ever exist again. And no matter how bad existence is, it's better than nothing. That's my response when I get to this place. So this is my response to them. And and this is not found on page 34 of the Buddhist manual. This is something that I came up with in the process of explaining Buddhism. That just maybe, just maybe, there is a realm of existence, and Buddhism has plenty of them, that doesn't require birth to exist. Everything on this planet, known as the samsara, the place where birth and death occur, everything was created. It was our first cause for everything. And because everything was created, everything has to end. Nothing exists forever. So no matter how bad you want to not die or not be reborn again, you will die and be reborn over and over again until you achieve nirvana, which I think is maybe a parallel universe or another realm of existence that requires nirvana to exist and not birth. Okay, so, so the high school students go, okay, well, what's the advantage of, of existing because of nirvana and not birth? Number one, you don't have to die. Number two, you won't be born. It's, 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 it's a place where ultimately peace exists. And now, the Buddha didn't go into any detail at all about nirvana. So I took it upon myself to at least give a word model to high school students about what I thought it was. So I'm going to qualify all of that by saying that. Okay, so now we have... How you doing? How you doing? So now we have this idea of the bodhisattva, the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena, an enlightenment experience, a non-dual experience that doesn't end suffering and doesn't last forever. See, the problem with Buddhism, other than nirvana, any attainment that you achieve is temporary. It's impermanent. So somebody's sitting and they have a great meditation retreat, it's been seven days, and they have this, they see the bodhisattva of compassion arise out of the lotus, and they say, wow, I'm maybe making progress. You know, now what's next? Well, what's next is to do it again for the first time. Always doing it again for the first time. So as soon as you think you've achieved some attainment, you are deluded. It's a momentary experience that was frozen because of your ego, self, or consciousness. And you added past and future to it, and now it's real and solid. But there's nothing real and solid in the enlightenment experience. There's only process and the interconnection and interdependence of all phenomena that can be an intuitive experience, but not an intellectual experience. So now we come to the Heart Sutra, and the Heart Sutra says, okay, we're going to give you an intellectual model for that intuitive experience of the interconnection and interdependence of all phenomena, that non-dual experience. So that's the Heart Sutra. So here we go. First paragraph. Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva. Avalokiteshvara is the Bodhisattva of compassion. When practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, the perfect wisdom, clearly saw that all five skandhas are empty and pass beyond all suffering. All five skandhas are empty and pass beyond all suffering. Now, this is where I thought it was fascinating because 
it seemed that Whitehead called impermanence novelty. There was, there's a cause and consequence that runs through our experience, but there's also an aspect of novelty, which is something that can't be anticipated. It's sort of the wild card of our experience that gives us a choice, gives us an option in everything that happens. So the same thing can never happen twice. Some of the same stuff can look familiar, but it's still the first time. And then we have this other line going. So now we have the five skandhas are empty. Empty of what? I said to myself as I read this, empty of independent existence. Maybe you can explain what standards are. Oh, that's, that's coming next. Okay. Oh, yes. We don't want to leave that behind. Okay. So, empty of independent existence. You know what? Monotheism has done a great disservice to the world by holding one at the top of the heap. Because when you come to Buddhism, it's never, ever one. It's always many that are interconnected and in process. You never have the one, and now we're in a postmodern time, and we're deconstructing the one, and we're finding the many that have created the one. So humans are just like that as well, according to Buddhism. A human was never thought of as being one thing. A human was name and form, or the five aggregates, the five skandhas, the five heaps. So let me get into that just briefly, because it's a fascinating idea. Pre-psychiatry and psychology, it's, it's, it has nothing to do with how we understand us today. But in ancient times, they came up with this model, this paradigm. So, five skandhas are form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. One more time, form, sensation, perception, Volition and consciousness. So imagine that I am thirsty and my eye form falls on the form of the water bottle. Now there is an awareness consciousness. It's, 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 it's a nondescript, it's, it's not specific, it's general. There's a conscious awareness of reality, my experience of it. And when the eye form falls on the bottle form, it stimulates the consciousness, this, this, this dual consciousness, it stimulates it with a sensation. Okay, so it's either going to be a pleasant sensation, unpleasant sensation, or neutral. If it's neutral, I'm not thirsty, I might not even see the water bottle. If it's, if it's something that I don't want to drink, there's an aversion to it. If there's something I do want to drink, it, there's an attachment to it, so it's pleasant or unpleasant. So now we have form, rudimentary consciousness, which allows us to have a sensation, which then gives us perception. So what is this perception, I said to myself? Well, the perception is the naming quality, it seems to me, that we have. And we started young. We started with our parents telling us that's a chair. And in a chair, it's just an arbitrary sound. It doesn't really mean anything. And, and even the concept of a chair is arbitrary because we all have different chairs in our head. But as soon as I said chair, my mom really liked it. And she congratulated me. Might even give me some chocolate pudding. Son, you said your first word, chair. I continued to say sounds and words. And... And my mom continued to congratulate me, and then I started to see the chair. Before I could name it, I couldn't see it. It was just this sort of, you know, it was, it was like in a tapestry. 
And I was able then with words to pull it out of the tapestry and bring it forward and, and, and separate it. Now, I had to separate it. Why do we have to separate it? It seems to me we have to separate it because we need to use it ultimately. And, and we can't use it if we can't name it. So now I've got this perception, I have named it, I know it's a chair, now we have the volitional activity. The volitional activity is all the times I've sat in a chair, pushed a chair, moved a chair, I know what to do with a chair, I know what to do with a water bottle, I can open it, I've had practice. So we react to it. And without thinking, after a while, we just open it, drink, close it down, blah, blah, blah. So a human is form sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. That's how the Buddha described a human being. So far, so good? Yeah, okay. Is form the same as body or embodiment? Uh, form, it would be the same as body if you're talking about a human or a form of a chair or the form of yeah, a car. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we, have, we, we need that. We have to have the form come in contact with the form to stimulate something. Okay. Okay. Uh, Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness. Emptiness does not differ from form. Then form is emptiness. Then emptiness is form. Sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness are also like this. This is an amazing paragraph because what we're saying is form is emptiness and emptiness is form. So how do we, how can we understand that? How did I understand that? Well, I, I thought of form, and I thought of emptiness, and empty of independent existence. So the illusion of independent existence is what form is, and the reality of emptiness, which is a non-dual reality, is, is what happens before form occurs. We have all these different pieces that exist and relate to each other in a very special way. But until the mind comes in contact with them and solidifies them and creates a word or a, a model or a definition, it's simply potential. So emptiness has the potential of form. Form has the potential of emptiness, which might be an easier way to understand that. So far, so good? This is a tough one. So if you don't get it right away, you were just like me. Now we come to Shariputra. All dharmas are marked with emptiness, not born and not dying, not stained and not pure, not gaining and not losing. Okay, the Mahayana, the reform movement, have now gone into full stride. Because in early Buddhism, what they said is all reality is based on dharmas. These are building blocks or units, much like the atomic theory. Everything is created by atoms, and then we see the final product. Well, well, the early Buddhists said everything is created by dharmas. And because, because of the dharmas, you see, we can have an experience. They were asked, how long do the dharmas exist? They said the dharmas exist for one moment. How long is a moment? It has no duration. You can have a thousand moments in a minute, or you can have ten moments in a minute. So we have this building block Dharma theory that exists momentarily. And now what the Mahayana Buddhists are saying is, you guys got it wrong. You, you started out 
And, and 500 years ago, it sounded pretty good. But now we're the sort of new Buddhists. We've had a lot of meditation. We've now incorporated Taoism and Confucianism into our Buddhism. We have now gone from it being a therapy, really important concept. Early Buddhism was a therapy. What was the therapy? I'm suffering. I need to end my suffering. Was early Buddhism a religion? Probably not. You had the yogis in the Indian forests and jungles wanting to end their suffering, to become free. So it wasn't necessarily a religious practice. It was a therapeutic practice. But now in the 5th century, the Mahayana said, no, no, no. We're, we, in order for Buddhism to survive with Taoism and Confucianism, we've got to have a religion here. So we're going to change the whole thing. We're going to have bodhisattvas instead of arahants. We're going to have service to others instead of service to self. We're not going to be little. We're going to be big. We're going to be the great vehicle, not the little vehicle. And now they're going to go through all the stuff that the Theravadans said was true, and they're going to say, no, it's not. We have found it not to be true. So all dharmas are marked with emptiness. They don't exist in the way you thought they existed. Not born and not dying. Not stained and not pure. Not gaining and not losing. Therefore, with an emptiness, there can't be any form. No sensation, perception, volition, or consciousness. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, or mind. No form, sound, smell, taste, touch, or dharmas. No realm of sight till we come to no realm of consciousness. So when I first read this, I was getting angry because my teacher was Theravada. He had explained this to me from the Abhidharma. I took it to be true, and in a relative context, it is true. In a relative context, it is true, just like process and reality. In a relative context, it is true. But the Mahayana said, no, no, no. We're talking about non-dual. We're talking about transcendent. We're talking about beyond intellectual model. If you're going to talk about anything, we're talking about an intuitive, an intuitive connection. And the connection has always been there. You have never been separate. So the connection is there. Your intuition is there. And now, in order to think and talk and speak about it, you have to solidify it, you have to intellectualize it, you have to be able to express it in a way other humans can understand, and it won't be through intuition, it'll be through intellect. What is the it? Huh? What is the it? What is the... That you used in the last sentence. That they have to understand. What is it? It is not there... It will be intellectualized. Oh, okay. What, what is it that they need to... Yeah. Everything. We, we live in a relative world. Our job is to understand. You know that Malaysian airliner went down? People spent millions of dollars to understand why it went down and where. Have we found it yet? Is there any reason why it went down? We don't know. We are going crazy. Intellectually. Intuitively... It was never here, and it was never gone. So see what I'm sort of saying about the intellect? That, that we, can, we create the world, this world right now that I'm creating for myself, is created by self and ego. It, is, it has a structure, it has a, it has a beginning, it has a middle and an end. 
It is the story, my story of Sunday, driving here, trying to find the place, getting parking, getting lost, getting found. All that is a story. But in, in actuality, what did I experience? What was the actual human experience of that story that I just shared with you? The actual human experience of that story was sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and thinking. And this ego, this wonderful ego that I really appreciate, it makes a great tool but a terrible master, has allowed me to create a story which I can share with you, and now you, because of past experience and your intellect, can understand what I'm talking about. So we share it. But we share it at a very basic level. Think of it this way. There is the map, which is the intellect. There is the terrain, which is the direct experience. There is the menu, which is the intellect. There is the actual eating of the meal, which is the intuitive. So when somebody says, that really tasted good... We go, wow, well, what did it taste like? Well, it tasted like broccoli. Well, what is broccoli? You know, and then you sort of break it all down, and it's just an experience, which is what it seemed to me Whitehead kept going after. You know, we have this experience. This is the real. And then everything else we just sort of make up so we can have a community and relate to each other. So in this, in this paragraph, what the Mahayana people and monks and nuns and followers are doing is they're saying those Theravadans, they, they missed the boat. They had an early form of this non-dual experience. They called it anatta. Anatta means not self. Okay. But they never went into emptiness, which is, which is where the Mahayana went. They said not only is self empty, not only that, but everything is empty. So they took it to the next level. And again, it's like the Protestants and the Catholics. You know, there's always like these little zingers that the Protestants are giving the Catholics and stuff. And I'm reading this, I'm thinking, this whole thing is a zinger. They, they were just really, you know, getting down on these Theravadans. Now we come to the Bodhisattva. Because the Bodhisattva follows the perfect wisdom, Prajnaparamita, the mind has no hindrance. Having no hindrance, there is no fear. And far from all fantasy, there is dwelling in nirvana. Because all the Buddhas of the three times follow the perfect wisdom, they gain complete and perfect enlightenment. Notice how we've got enlightenment and nirvana in the same paragraph? Therefore, know that the Prajnaparamita is the great holy mantra, the great bright mantra, the wisdom mantra, the unequaled mantra, which can destroy all suffering, truly real and not false. So he gave the Prajnaparamita mantra, which goes, Gatin, Gatin, Param, Gatin, Parasam, Gatin, And you say that three times, and magic occurs. It usually isn't translated, but, you know, it's never good enough for the Westerners not to leave it untranslated. So it's been translated as, gone, gone, gone beyond to the other shore. Now, what does that mean? You see, these are all questions I had. What the heck are these people talking about? Not only is this a really difficult thing to understand intellectually, but having recited it now for over 20 years, uh, it, it's starting to make a little sense. 
And, and what they're talking about, gone, gone, gone beyond the other shore. They were not talking about this form, this body. This body goes no place. This body lives, exists, dies. But our consciousness, our experience, travels to the other shore. The shore of peace and tranquility. Which ultimately may be non-dualistic. But I'm not sure how a person who has a non-dualistic experience is going to live in the world. Because it's a really complicated world. And you think about Ronald Reagan. There was a PBS thing about him last night. Alzheimer's. He became non-dual. And, and he needed constant care. And couldn't figure out who he used to be or who he was going to be. So when I hear people saying, you know, enlightenment, non-dual is really good, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, you, you won't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. You, you want to use the intellect and the self to reduce suffering and, and, and maneuver through a very complicated world. You can't do it in a non-dual way, as far as I can tell. And when I read what the Buddha said in the early Buddhist tradition, he seemed to be very connected to what was going on. He wasn't like, you know, in, in bliss land. He seemed to be right there, and yeah, this guy's suffering, this guy's not suffering, this is what I did for my suffering, why don't you try it, da 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 Seems to be very connected. And even when he died, he didn't, you know, seem out in la-la land. He said, you know, does anybody else have a question? I'm dying now. And I've achieved nirvana. I am not coming back. I have finally ended my lifetimes of suffering, first as a human, then as a bodhisattva. And we have to say, in reading the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, that he probably lived as a bodhisattva 550 lifetimes before he was born as Siddhartha, according to the Jataka tales. And before that, how many lifetimes? And in each lifetime, he died. How many tears were shed? Could probably fill the oceans of the planet with all the tears that are shed over a period of thousands, if not infinite lifetimes, of having to say goodbye to our friends and family and relatives and pets. Wow. So here he is. He's finally ended all that suffering. Anybody else have a question? Anybody want to know something before I go? Okay, be a lamp unto yourself. And off he went. And then what did the Mahayana do? They resurrected him. We don't want to let good people go. So they said, no, that was just one of the bodies. The Buddha has three bodies. Trikaya. So he's still with us in some form or other. You know, we don't want to lose. One of the things I liked about the Buddha dying is I'm going to die. So I could relate to that. And I'm not going to be resurrected. Nobody's going to care if I come back. But they cared about the Buddha. So I'm reading this now. And I'm thinking, okay, we have the issue with the soul. Whitehead said the same thing. We have the issue with uh, the self is, is composed of stability and continuity. And where does everything come from? That has fascinated me for two decades where does everything come from? If, we don't, if the God of Christianity is not the God of Buddhism because we don't have one, then where does this stuff come from? And, and it seems to me that it comes from impermanence. That everything comes out of impermanence. That long, long ago, according to some scientific experts, we had this big bang theory, which started it. 
And now they say if you get a really powerful telescope, you can look back 10 light years, 20 light years, 100 light years, blah, 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 almost to when it started. So it's just a giant expansion. Everything's continuing to expand and change, and nothing lasts for even a moment, which gives the possibility of everything to exist. Do you know? And people are bummed out about dying, but there's a story about India where nobody died. Everybody then oh, got more crowded and more crowded, just like the 405 freeway. You know? <laughs> and finally, this God steps forward and says, I'm the God of death. I'll, I'll take some of these people out to give you a little room to work with. So then we had birth and death. So this impermanence thing, nothing really lives in any eventful way. Always in a constant state of process. Always in a constant state of becoming something else. Now, I have been given the honor of doing a keynote speech at a commencement ceremony on Thursday. And who would have thought me? I'm going to give a commencement ceremony. Well, it's to eighth graders. They're going to high school. It's even better. Even better. So I'm going to talk about all the possibilities you're going to have in going to high school because everything is going to be different. You're going to have different friends, you're going to have different courses, different goals to meet, and you're going to grow and turn into something really special because of it. The only time we don't turn into anything different is when we're dead, but even then we turn into something different. I've got cats in the backyard. They went into sort of bodies and form, you know, and then sometimes you have to move them because you need that space in the backyard, and you dig them up, and there's like bones, you know. <laughs> And then if you leave them long enough, those even sort of go away. And then it's like, you, know, you go, wow. So in life and death, we're in a constant state of becoming something else. If we have any attainment at all in our Buddhist practice, it too will change. Don't get attached and don't stop trying. Because it's this, it's this place. Now, to share a story... 1985, been meditating, not a monk. Stuff started to happen. Meditation practice was working pretty good. And I started to say, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I, you know, this is really weird stuff that's going on. And, you know, I was listening to Ram Dass. He's talking about LSD. I'm meditating, having some of the same experiences. I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to stop. And then my teacher said, you can't ever stop. You can't ever stop. And you can't ever go back. You always got to go forward. There's no place to stand. It's, it's a river, this whole thing, and we're part of that river. And so if you freak out, you just got to put that next foot in front of the last one and just walk forward because that's the only direction life goes. Nobody can stop. Nobody can go back. Whoa, I'm thinking this is really scary to be a human being because there's no place to ever just relax and reach that plateau. I have finally become something. Well, yeah, for that one moment which doesn't exist in time, you finally became something, and now you've got to become something else. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Why were you going to stop? Because it was not what I expected. But isn't that what life is all about? <laughs> is life ever what we expect it to be? It might seem familiar or similar to something we anticipated would happen, but it's always so different. And, and do I have the flexibility and knowledge 
to deal with these new circumstances that are arising? Or will they just take me away and make me into nothing? You know, so all these were like fears and anxieties of impermanence and change. Better get out while you've got a chance. Yeah, and there's no place to get out to. And there he is. is. Yeah, there's no place to go. Yeah. So I started to dress funny. I cut my hair. You know, it just sort of carried me along in a certain direction. This is your calling. No, it wasn't my calling. I don't have a calling. This is what happens when you practice too much. You don't change your religion, it changes you. You know, you, one day you look in the mirror and you go, damn, what happened? <laughs> so it can be surprising. That's sort of like the point. Now, I was reading, what do we do about all this stuff? We, this, was an, this is like an environmental thing, you know, and, um, and, I, and I look around, and I live in Koreatown, downtown Los Angeles, and we have graffiti and defecation in the alley and abandoned animals and homeless and then we have this sort of superficial Friday night Koreatown with all the clubs and the restaurants and no parking and everybody's having fun and they're going in couples and the universe is causing us to replicate and have more of us as if we need any more. And so I'm thinking to myself, how can I apply this sort of non-dual relative awareness, this constant state of becoming, in a way that will reduce the suffering in the world? Because, see, as a Buddhist, I don't think we change the world. And I don't think we change people. I think we reduce suffering. That's the only reason I would get involved with any kind of organization. Not to change anything other than reduce suffering. I remember when I was a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall, there was a youth organization that was formed to be of service to kids when they got out of Juvenile Hall and give them some direction. And their motto was... God in every child. And I was on board until they created the model. The model. And I said, you know, I can't be part of this. Because in Buddhism, we don't have God. Could you change God into good? Could you just add an O? And, and I'll be part of it. No, I'm sorry, we can't. We're going to have God. Because everybody wants to have God. I said, okay. So I had to step down, and I ended up having one less thing to do, which, not bad. Now as I get older, I want far fewer things to do because I still got work to do on myself. So if I'm not going to use God to change the world, if I'm going to use good and skillful to change the world, how do I change the world? Well, the Buddha said, in our entire world exists in this fathom-long body, fingertip to fingertip. Now, when I first read that, I go, so... But when I thought about it, it dawned on me that, that there's really nothing out here. It's in here. I am creating my world. And if I want to have a better world, I have to have a better me. Because I'm in charge of my world. And my world is in process with your world, and we are interconnected and interdependent. We are causing each other to arise out of emptiness, exist for a moment, which doesn't exist in time at all, and fall away into the next person you're going to become in that next moment. So they have something called the five mindfulness practices, which I call the five precepts. It's the foundation of all Buddhist meditation. It's also the foundation of every Buddhist practice. And when you become an official Buddhist, you take the three refuges and the five precepts. So first precept, 
not to take life. My world will be a better place if I do not kill things. And I love people that fish. I hope there's no fisher people in here, men or women. And if you are, it's okay because a lot of people do. But I get a kick out of the advertisements for fishing. There's no better way to relax and go out to the side of a river and kill some fish. Yeah, let's kill them. And then you get like 10 dead fish and you go, wow, this has been a great day. Well, you know what? You start to meditate and you start to relate to the first precept of not taking life and you start to see that all life is interconnected and all life is valuable and all life is a part of you. You're not separate from it. You are not the stewards of the earth, according to Buddhism. You are the earth, according to Buddhism. And every time you kill a fish, there's a part of you that's being killed. So now the Buddha says, well, I had a wonderful epiphany. I'm not going to kill any fish. I'm just going to be a vegetarian. But now the broccoli and asparagus are alive as well, and they scream when you pull it out of the ground. You just can't hear them. So what am I supposed to do as a Buddhist who has come into this ideal of not killing. Well, you are forced into killing. You are forced into killing because their life sustains your life. And if you're skillful in how you interpret that, you could say, I don't want to kill the highest life form to survive. I'm going to kill the lowest life form to survive. Now, personally, I never thought Christians would be real good at that, but I just got back from Gethsemane, Gethsemane Monastery in Kentucky. Whereas where Thomas Merton lived. They have been vegetarian at that monastery now for over a decade. It's an amazing thing. And none of them are thin. It doesn't mean you're going to be rail-like in your appearance. You might be healthier, you know. But, and they don't have water bottles. I was talking about it earlier. You know what do you do in Gethsemane if you want water? You have to get a glass and fill it and drink from it. And then you have to clean the glass so it can be used again. What a concept that is. I have metal, so I can clean it, but wow. So here we are. How can we have a first precept and not be able to care for it or not be able to hold it, as they say, hold it? Well, it's going to keep you humble. Humility is part of the Buddhist path. And for all presenters, humility does not make an interesting presentation. So... How does one stay tuned to the self but realize it's just something that you use to share a story, to make a point, to maybe change behavior? How do you do that? Well, in, the, in not killing, I came to understand that all these little creatures that I am slowly not killing, even down to cockroaches, ants is sort of hard. Because, you know, you get, a, you get a thousand ants on your sink, and it's really hard not to kill a couple of them. What do I do when I kill a couple ants? I wish them a good rebirth. Don't come back as an ant, I tell them. Come back as something else. And then I kill them. But cockroaches, I can move the cockroaches and put them outside. Spiders, I like spiders because spiders kill mosquitoes. So I have a couple spiders in my room that I encourage to stay there. They have become my friends. Mice. I really like mice, but we have eight cats in the backyard, and every now and then that little guy ends up dead in the cat's mouth. And I just am so sad, and I wish them a good rebirth, and I go look at the cat, and I realize 
It is the cat's nature to kill the mice. How lucky am I, being human, to be able to override my nature of killing and, and live in harmony with most creatures that walk on the earth because I have a self, a human self, that allows that transcendence. It's an amazing thing. So when people say self is the problem, no, it's not the problem. It's only if you listen to self too much. Then it's the problem. But self is necessary. Second one. Second one is, is, is not to take stuff, not to take what is not given. Well, you know, if you're into consumerism at all or anti-consumerism at all, you realize that we are stuck in a giant conspiracy to own stuff. And if I go someplace and they give me a receipt, that's my license to own it. This has now become mine, and now I have to care for it, insure it, take care of it, place it where it won't get you know, broken or stolen. And, and sometimes it just gets stolen because somebody wants it more than I do, even though I have the receipt. And I can remember one of my cars that I used to have, the radio was stolen. I went out, and the window was broken, and there was a hole where the radio used to be, and I just I tripped out. I got really angry, and I started yelling at my car, saying, who owns you car? And listened carefully for any response, and there was silence, and I realized I was just using it until somebody wanted it more than I did. So this consumerism, if we buy enough stuff, if we have enough receipts, we'll be happy. You know, and, and it's everywhere, you know, it's like you, you watch a baseball game, not the Dodgers on TV, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden there's like more commercials than the show. So it's like just for the people who want to sell us stuff, you know? And I'm thinking to myself, the more stuff I have, the more anxious I am because I've got to, you know, figure out where to put it. I live in a room. I've lived in a room for 20 years. People like to give me stuff. Here, you, that was so nice of you to do this for me. Here's some stuff for you. I said, but yeah, I live in a room. There's hardly any room for me now. I got a cat. I got me and I got stuff. I'm going, man. So if we have too much stuff, we buy a little house for our stuff called a storage locker, you know, and that's a couple hundred bucks a month, and we have more stuff that we go visit once in a while, saying, oh, wow, I own this stuff. And and I I see is if you really want to be happy, it's like to have just the stuff that you need, but just the stuff that you use and not that you own. So if you can shift from ownership to usership, I use this oven because it allows me to eat, but I've never owned the oven and never will. And, and that, there's a sort of a lightness that comes with that. Okay, third one, sexual misconduct. This is a trip. High school students just love this one. So, you know, in L.A., it's okay to do everything, isn't it? This is 2015. So what did the Buddha say? You know, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, in a book on the Eightfold Path, the Buddha said this. He said, there are some things you don't want to do. Not because it's wrong, but because it's unskillful, and it increases suffering rather than decreases suffering. So this is a big trip, you know. When I was at Juvenile Hall, and I looked at all those kids, and by the way, they all had this haircut, I'm looking at them, and I'm thinking, you guys aren't bad. There's no bad or good. They're, they're, you guys are just really unskillful. And you add a couple skills, 
And you'll be fine. You'll get along with people as well as anybody else does. So the, what did the Buddha said? Do not have sex with people that are married, number one. Do not have sex with people who are engaged, number two. Do not have sex with children, number three. Why those three? The Buddha, before he was the Buddha, was Siddhartha. He was a husband and he was a father. He knew the importance of family as building blocks for any community. And we needed to honor that and not overstep. Okay? Then he said, do not have sex with people against their will. And like those are the four things, pretty much, that the Buddha said about having sex. Now let me tell you what the monks think about that and the nuns. Okay, the monks aren't supposed to have sex at all. No sex, you know, and so it's been 20 years, so far so good. You know, and, and number one, wh- why would that be the case? Why would it be wrong for a monk or a nun to have sex? Well, it really affects the way you do your job. Okay, we're supposed to have enough freedom to be able to travel, to be able to speak, to be invited, to have an impartial view of things, looking at the trees and not the forest, all those kind of things, okay? And if you find yourself in an intimate relationship, sooner or later, those little rascals will appear, children, and now you've got mortgage and car payments and college tuition, and if you're unlucky enough not to have it carry out to its end, you've got alimony and child support, and you'll be working really hard just to keep that little family unit going. So as a single celibate monk, that doesn't even enter into the picture. But the second and most important reason monks and nuns are celibate is because in relationship you will be happy, you can be in love, you can be fulfilled, and you can be joyous, but there's one thing you'll never be, and that is free. And our job is to be free, to be an example of freedom. And you say, free from what? Free from suffering. You'll never be free from suffering in relationship, no matter how good it is. I'm 66. I haven't found a perfect one yet. You know? So it's an interesting concept, I think. Celibacy, either by circumstance or choice, to be free. Family unit, it's the way it's supposed to be. You are supposed to find your partner and create a a family. And it's been that way ever since the beginning of humans. And there is this universal pressure that seems to push us in that direction. But all of a sudden, a few men and women who have been pushed in that direction lifetime after lifetime wake up and say, maybe this lifetime, I'm going to do it a little bit differently. Maybe this lifetime, I'm going to go solo. And see what it means to be me, and see what it means to be me interacting with the world around me. And maybe I can make a difference, maybe not. But if I have more time to work on myself something might change within me, and if the entire world exists in this fathom-long body, according to Buddhism, every time I change, the world changes, and all those in the world change because we are connected. So far, so good. Fourth one, speech. Speaking skillfully. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that increase suffering, not decrease suffering. False, malicious, harsh, Gossip and idle chatter. No more TMZ for the Buddhist monks. we got to just, you know, <laughs> 60 minutes and that's our stuff. So 
how many times have you said something or somebody said something to you that you wish you could take back or not have heard? And it, it, and once it's out into the world, and the Buddha said about karma, thought has the least consequence, speech has the next least consequence, action has the most consequence. But there's always a consequence every time you say something, and do something, and even think something. So think of the courage it took me to sit here today and speak all these words, hoping I wouldn't make my life any worse. Or yours. <laughs> so skillful speech can be very difficult. Now, last but not least, we have not to become intoxicated. Gethsemane, Catholic monastery, you know what they make? They make bourbon fudge and bourbon fruitcake. And Jim Beam Distillery is just down the road. And I'm... I don't like to think about, but if you're a Catholic, it's okay to drink. It's, it's okay. It's not, maybe not okay to get drunk, but it's okay to drink. As a Buddhist, it's not even okay to get to drink. Why is that the case? Because it ruins our clarity. We spend hours and hours sitting quietly like a frog on a rock, trying to be clear and compassionate. And six beers later, we're racing through the streets, causing all sorts of havoc to all the inhabitants of the town. Because even if we had a master's degree from UCLA, a case of beer steals it away from us. And who knows about the marijuana now? Everybody says, I'm so glad we have marijuana. In my neighborhood on Vermont Avenue, we have two marijuana dispensaries, one on one side of the street, one on the other side of the street. I've lived in Koreatown for 23 years. I have never seen so many Caucasians in Koreatown, and they are going to one place. <laughs> They're going to get their medicine. I'm thinking, man, you know, and the kids are in the alley, and they're smoking, and the girls are smoking with the boys, and everybody's smoking, and they think it doesn't cause any harm, and people enjoy getting high. They really do, but if they thought about it, the experience of being a human being is the most incredible hallucination you will ever have. It is not matched by any drug. It is, we are creating the whole world moment by moment. Man. So, these five mindfulness practices can allow us to live in community in a skillful way to reduce suffering and maybe consumerism as well. We can honor those who live with us because they are part of us. But how about, how about the cities now, where I live? What can we do about that? We seem to be going in just a terrible direction that's, that's fueled by greed and delusion. We have fracking now. You know, Oklahoma has never had so many earthquakes as, as, until they started fracking. And once that, those chemicals get into the water table, which is connected throughout the United States, as I understand it, what are we going to drink? And Nestle is bottling all these waters, you know, and you're going, man. So I, I look at this and I'm thinking, what can we do? What do we need to do? How, how, do, how can we wake up and be an example to others? And a few years ago, I think it was 2008, 
We had a Gethsemane conference, again, called Gethsemane 3. It's on my website, urbandharma.org, if you are so inclined to go and click on it. And we had presentations on living in an environmentally skillful way from Buddhists and Catholics. So Christians and Buddhists came together and shared how they did it, how they were doing it. Now, granted, if you're living in a monastery, it's a pretty much closed system, and you got one guy or gal in charge, and he or she can redirect the whole community to go in a certain way. So there was one monastery that was inhabited by nuns, and they bought a windmill. And it's just this giant, brand new, technologically perfect windmill. And they get all their electric energy from the windmill. And people from all over come because it's like flat land. You get this little monastery, and then you have this giant windmill. They come from all over. Just look at the windmill. And the nuns invite them in and offer them tea and, and a little conversation. And they go, wow, what a great windmill. And then you've got the solar panels. And a lot of the monasteries are going in that direction. They're going in the direction of, of living in a more simplistic way to save the natural resources that we are just devouring. I was reading in an article just the other day that in a few years, China will have one and a half billion humans living there, and all of them want to have a car. And there's not enough oil or gasoline to even support China, let alone the rest of the world. And you go, wow. So those days are sort of gone. Can we inspire voluntary simplicity? Can we be examples of someone living in a special way that contains all the fullness and happiness and joy, but without the products and the necessity of caring and protecting and ensuring? Can we live in a simple way? What comes to my mind is my grandfather. My grandfather, of course, came from another era. And I'm fond of saying, even today at 66, this is not the world I was born in. We had the Beatles. <laughs> My grandfather was a coach, and his, and, his, and, his, and his wife was a legal secretary, and they had a two-story house on Maryland Avenue in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It was wonderful, and they raised a family, and the family did well. And then they got old, like we all get old, and then they decided to move to Whitefish Bay. Just down the road, it's a more exclusive neighborhood. They got, they got a one-story house because those stairs were just getting to be a killer after a certain age, you know. Then my grandmother had a stroke, and, and she went into assisted care, and then my grandfather would visit, and then he got really old trying to care for her, and then he ended up in the same place. So when my grandfather died, he had one chair and one lamp and a Playboy in the drawer. But that was... <laughs> Those were different times. And you just and I'm thinking to myself, he went from two stories to one story to a chair and a lamp. And that seems to be the natural progression of a lot of lives. We start out with nothing. We work really hard. We get a whole bunch of stuff. Then we start either giving it away or throwing it away or selling it. And then we end with nothing. And I think that's like the perfect way to check out of this world. Now, I also have to say, it happens with us as well humans as well, that Ram Dass talks about the first half of our life is becoming somebody. And we go to school, we have a career, we're successful. People look at us and say, now that's somebody. 
And then he said the second half of our life is becoming nobody. And we give up all that somebodiness, and Buddhism is really good at helping us give up that somebodiness. And somebody asked me the other day, well, why is it good to be nobody when you're old? And I said, because nobody dies well. And they went, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, so we have these stages in life, always in a constant of becoming, either becoming, and always becoming older, actually. And then we die, and then we become something else, and we die. And, and, our, and our careers, and our possessions, and we have more, and we have less, and da 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 And all along the way, the Buddha warns us not to be attached. Don't cling. Don't cling. Because you will suffer so much when it's time to let it go. And I think about my grandfather with the lamp and the chair. He probably had no problem at all letting go of that lamp and chair after all the other stuff he had let go of. He knew how to do it. And so as I live in my room with the cat and stuff, I am starting to let go of stuff and give stuff away and make my stuff available to other people so they can use it and appreciate it in the way I did because I'm moving on now to different stuff, to less stuff, and stuff that has more meaning, and stuff that stimulates me intellectually as well as, as, as through my heart. And I wanna, I've got to read this to you here. A poet by the name of Saul Williams said this, in an age where everyone is trying to be hardcore, hardcore progressive, hardcore conservative, hardcore zen, we can train in being heartcore. Hardcore. So by coming to a place in our life where we become selfless, as selfless as we can become, we become the bodhisattva, we become of service to others, the heart and the mind seem to merge, and now we look at the world and experience it through our heart-mind, not just our intuition, not just our intellect, but a combination. And rather than reacting in a habitual way, now we are responding with wisdom and compassion. Ah, good. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Does anybody have any comments or questions they'd like to share? Yes. I have a question about um, multiple lifetimes. Okay. And so if, if you say someone is reborn many times, what is it that continues to make it the same being or the same identity that's reborn? How is it the same? It can be really difficult to use past lifetimes and future lifetimes. So let's just use this lifetime. Okay? And I'll use myself in this example. I found some eighth grade pictures of myself in preparation to give the commencement ceremony address. And, and I thought to myself, that little guy died a long time ago. And then I found myself in high school, and I found myself with my first job, and I found myself with a variety of girlfriends. Somebody asked me the other day, why didn't you ever get married? I said, well... I never found the one. I only found the many. That's just me. So now, even two years ago, I look at myself. And now I look at myself today and I'm going, geez, what the hell happened? So I have been many different people in just this one lifetime. And I will continue to be many different people in the future as well. But 
to your question, what migrates from lifetime to lifetime? Mm -hmm. What is the causal connection? It is karmic energy according to early Buddhism, the Theravada tradition. The Buddha said we have this karma that we are creating through thinking, speaking, and acting. We are like a transformer, if you will. We have this neutral energy in the world and the universe, and every time we think, say, or do something, we're transforming it and giving it a moral value, Mm -hmm. either a good energy or a not-so-good energy. It follows us like a wake from a boat in the in the lake. It just is, and, then, and then the body dies, this transformer dies, but the wake doesn't go away. And it goes out into the universe. And it's said that it seeks out humans having sex. It somehow can sense, can sense that and merges with the sperm and an egg and that's when human life occurs according to Buddhism, early Buddhism. Now, that karma is oftentimes at a very deep level in our subconscious called the vibhanga consciousness, the vibhanga consciousness, or in Mahayana called the storehouse consciousness. So we have the seeds of all our past lives, and it said on the night the Buddha realized his nirvana, he could look back 100,000 lifetimes. So I thought to myself, but why can't I do that now? Why can't I just look back at 100,000 lifetimes? And it came to me that these seeds are in code, and I can't decipher them until I have an enlightened mind, the mind of nirvana. Then I can break the code and see all my past lives. So the wake that finds a uniting egg and sperm is not anything that we understand in terms of a spatio-temporal physical entity. What what form does it have? It must have some form to, to come into it. It has the form of process. It has the form of a river. It, it doesn't... Unfortunately, and I, and I say this with great compassion, unfortunately, we are not who we think we are. Our self arises moment to moment, mm-hmm. takes, takes credit for all the stuff in our life. But in the very next moment, it's really a different self because it's had different experiences, it has different physical sensations and feelings, it has all sorts of other things that have changed. So the people that walked into this room are going to be not the people that leave this room. It is hard to look at ourselves as a process. And I think Whitehead probably felt the same way. So, but, there's, but he used this thing of there's, there's a stability aspect to the process too. And that stability aspect allows us to recognize people we haven't seen for a while. But if you haven't seen a person for 50 years, it's really hard to recognize them because they have changed a lot. If you haven't seen somebody for two years, it's much easier. So there's a causal connection between each and every person we've been in this lifetime and will be in all our future lifetimes. There's a stability aspect that allows us to recognize. But what we don't see, because we keep solidifying that image and making it solid and unchanging, what we don't see is the ever-continuing process just below the surface. You know, and, and, and you look, Gary Snyder, a famous uh, beat poet, talking about a, a trip to the mountains, and he's sitting around the campfire, and, and he says to his buddy, he says, I wonder how these trees feel about us. We're only here 60 or 70 years, and those trees are probably here three or 400 years. And his buddy says, I wonder how the mountains feel about the trees. <laughs> you know, so we have, we have different levels of solidity and impermanence and change. And, and, but it all is process. And it all is process that is conditional. The process 
depends on certain conditions to continue. And if too many conditions are taken away, the process ceases to exist. Us, for instance, breath, more than five minutes, we're dead. Water, more than seven days, you know. So we, we have all these conditions. Somehow, this is the most amazing part for me, being a human being. Somehow, I have had all these conditions present in my life for 66 years. I have figured out a way to exist. I've had breath, I've had water, I've had food, I've had clothing and shelter and medicine. Whoa! And it continues. But take too many of those away, the process radically changes. It's called death. Is, is that helpful? Yes, it doesn't fully answer the question, but I know it's not something that can be intellectually conveyed in a five-minute question-and-answer period either. Yes, thank you for that. I appreciate that. But, but if you've started to understand it, you're, that's fantastic. I've tried, I have tried to for a long time. So. It can be a challenge. Do you, do you have a regular meditation practice? No. That is helpful. That allows us to get in touch with our, with our intuition and have those unitive experiences instead of separate. And, and, and then in reading the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, it seems to put things into their perspective, a proper, understandable perspective. So I, I would encourage, if you can, it's really hard. It's a hard practice because there's no obvious results. Mm-hmm. Every time you sit down, you wake up, feel, you know, it feels like the same thing, unless you did go to sleep. But uh, for me, uh, I started with great hope that I would just have these miraculous, you know, insights and epiphanies. And I, now I just sit, and I sit, and I, I ring the gong, and I get up, and I have a cup of coffee. That's what I do. <laughs> uh, I was wondering, um, because in the West, we have this notion of emptiness as nothingness. Yeah. And I think that that's a little bit off. Oh, very much off the mark. So could you talk a little bit about Sure, sure. Let me uh, get back into that. So we have this emptiness. Empty of independent existence. Now, a lot of people gave me some really profound and, and full explanations of emptiness. But that one just sort of made sense to me the first time I heard it. Empty of independent existence. So nothing exists independently. Everything is conditional like I just talked about. And Whitehead talks about that too, it seems to me. So everything is conditional, and everything is in process, and everything changes because everything else changes. So the only time we can stop the process is through our self solidifying a flow and adding past and future. And and so the story I began with about the rabbi and the memorial service, it's just a story, but, but most of our life is built on stories. And, and so I have found the value of storytelling, and people have talked about it for a long time, but it took me a while, to, because that's how most people relate to the world and themselves. Now, if you look at the story, you realize you made it up, it has little or nothing to do with what happened. It's a personal interpretation or remembrance. But it is always the map and not the terrain. You know? And so it's like the finger pointing at the moon. It's never the moon. Well, our stories are the finger pointing at an experience we may have had that is similar. But if you break it down, what you find is many, many parts and pieces that are intermingling 
and changing all the time. So nothing can exist independently and apart from everything else. And when I was reading about how Whitehead added God to his profound theory of everything, he added God as part of the process, not to stand apart and observe and critique. So I, I thought that was fascinating because most of the God concepts I've heard, they, they create something that stands apart and is the creative. And so as the process continues in this Whitehead example, God continues to be created as well. Just fascinating. So Buddhism would say, absolutely not. Everything is in process. Nothing stands apart. Everything is empty of independent existence. Does that make sense? Yes. Empty? It does make a kind of sense. Okay. There, there is some Whitehead. Recall. Yeah, no. I'm just really new at Whitehead, so. Continuity of identity over time. Uh huh. It's always changing, of course, but there is a continuity of identity. And I think he uses the word stability, okay. at least in the book I read, which I think is true. I think there's an aspect of stability, and then there, and then he, then he put an aspect of novelty. So you have the stability, which is recognizable, and the novelty, which is which is the potential for change, yeah. and becoming something else. Yeah. Uh, is there, is Buddhism allowed more continuity, continuity? There is a there is a continuity which is found in the storehouse consciousness or the or uh, it 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 is there. It they are seeds, seeds of past experiences. But even in this lifetime it's hard to see the continuity, so over many lifetimes it might be impossible. Until one achieves nirvana, and that seems to be the that, that magic realization where it all becomes clear. Now the emphasis on, on being able to see the past lives I thought was interesting. It, it wasn't because it has any particular value other than teaching. Because not only could he see his 100,000 lifetimes, he could see your 100,000 lifetimes. So now you come up to him and ask him a question, and he looks back and sees all the people you've been, all the choices you've made, all the good and the bad, and he gives you the perfect answer to every question. Because he has that context all those past lives. Fascinating. So when people say, well, what's the benefit of having being able to look at past lives? The people I've talked to who remember their past lives have always been really cool people. Princes and princesses and, you know. There's never a plumber. In there. There's never a plumber. <laughs> yeah. Where did the plumbers go? Aren't they reborn anymore? You know, I know. So, so in Buddhism, the advantage is you're the best teacher you could be because you know exactly what your student needs to hear. In the Vajrayana tradition, uh, there is almost like this frozen karmic energy in what is called the subtle, subtle consciousness, which is what goes on from lifetime to lifetime. Mm -hmm. So it's a, a slightly it's similar, different, yeah. Si similar but slightly different. Yeah, yeah. So that, that it posits a more tangible kind of thing. Yeah. So it's an energy form that yeah. you're describing it? Conscious. It is so far as consciousness is an energy. energy. What I see is that the Vajrayana has incorporated the Theravada and the Mahayana, and, and know, added so their own it, stuff. Yeah. So, so what it's taken is the karmic energetic conception 
of the Vajrayana, what goes from life to, of, of the Theravada, what goes from lifetime to lifetime, incorporated this whole thing about seeds, and then taken all this and talked about a very subtle consciousness. The best uh, explanation of this is in the last uh, um, translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the introduction to that uh, is by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he talks very specifically about the Vajrayana conception of what is reborn. Okay. For me, um, I hear a lot of talk about afterlife, what's going to happen afterlife. And I don't know about you guys, but I have my hands full right now. You know, and uh, you've probably heard this, but the idea of uh, you know reincarnation just right now in your own life, right? Just becoming whatever the hell you ever did in the prior moment, obviously your next Bob in the next moment is all those waves that I've been stirring up are, are still there in the next moment. And uh, I have my hands full just keeping track of you know, every, every next reincarnating in this life rather than, you know, yes, probably the Tibetan, some of these hard, hardcore people may be able to push on into deep future, I don't know, but seems like well, I'm still down. You know, there's a practical aspect to having afterlife. I know there's, it's oftentimes rejected by the Westerners uh, as being foolish or fantasy-like. Uh, but but there, uh, in early Buddhism, you have 30 heavens and 30 hells. You have so many places you can go. And there's something called the six realms of existence that I can share with you. But I have to correct you, it's not reincarnation. In Tibetan Buddhism, it may seem like reincarnation because it's almost like a soul-like theory that migrates. But in Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism, it's called rebirth. And rebirth because it lacks a soul. So we have the first realm of existence, which is perfect, the heaven realm. And, and the problem for Buddhists with this realm is all realms are temporary. All realms are in process. None of them last forever. So at some point in this perfect heaven, when your karma wears out and you're no longer able to make any karma deposits, you have to leave. And I can't imagine anything worse than having to leave heaven, the perfect heaven. But the Buddha said the earthly realm is the best place for humans to be because we have a shot at nirvana. We can, it's just bad enough to keep us honest and not... And, and we don't get caught up in the good because that's temporary as well. The second heaven realm is, I call the Donald Trump heaven realm, and there's a little desire with this one. And if only you had one more house or one more wife, it would be a perfect heaven, and you'd never get them. The third existence is the human realm, where we all are. We made it. We have good karma to be here, even though it may not seem like that. The first hell realm, the, 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 the first hell realm is the animal realm. Now, if you have cats and dogs, you think, well, th that's not such a bad life, but most cats and dogs and, and animals have a terrible life, and not very long, and a lot of them end in just terrible ways. So you don't want to be an animal. When you die, you say, I'm, I, I want to be a cat because my cat had the best life. You don't want to be a cat. You want to be a human. <laughs> then you get in, into... Or a fish. Yeah, or a fish, yeah. Or a koi fish. Yeah, get flushed on the toilets, you know. Man. Then there is the hungry ghost realm. And these are giant creatures, like 15 feet tall, and they had this little pinhole for a mouth. 
And no matter how hard they try to put the food through the mouth, it never satisfies their hunger. It's like a Macy's sale on the weekend. Never satisfied. And then finally, the hell realm, the worst hell realm of all, where you sort of look like you do, and you're walking through this forest, and we have all these leaves fall and turn into razor blades and cut you in a million pieces, and you cry out in pain and suffer and die, and you get resurrected again on the spot so you can die over and over and over again to purify that karma that puts you into the hell realm, and then you get to be reborn out. Now, you might say to yourself after listening to this, well, this, it's a good story, and it would be nice to, to know if it was real. And if you look at Theravada Buddhism, they know exactly how high the heavens are and how low the hells are, which I thought was just fascinating. But let's say you're dying. Let's say for some reason, you know, maybe you're just old and you're dying. And, and I think it's really nice to have a place to go. And, and so the monk would come in, and the monk would be dressed in, in his robes, or the nun in her robes, and, and your eye consciousness, the eye form and eye consciousness, would fall on that. And you'd remember all the times you had seen monks and nuns before, and hopefully it was a pleasant experience. And then, and then the monk or nun might chant, and your eardrums would vibrate, and you'd hear the Dharma, and you remember all the times you've heard the Dharma. And, and, then, and then you might bring some incense, and not being able to light it, you just lay the incense on the pillow next to the person, they could smell it. And then you have a mala, some wooden beads, and the person could feel it. And you'd have all these, and you have all these sense doors with their own specific consciousness being stimulated by the Dharma. And then you remember all the good things you've done. All the times you've, you've you know, even given a morsel of food to an animal. You've, you've called your mother every Mother's Day. You did all the things that you felt added to your skillfulness and reduced the suffering of your family and friends. And those would just generate through your consciousness. And when you died, they say that your last thought is the first thought of the next lifetime. So you would be reborn in a better place rather than a worse place. Uh, and, and again, you might be just reborn in Paulus Verdes rather than Koreatown. That would, be a, that would be a better place. So I like all the afterlife stories. I like all that stuff because I know I'm going to die. And, and I want to go someplace, and I want to go someplace nice. Is it true? Has my life been true in the way I thought it's been? No. My life has been an illusion, a really good illusion sometimes and not so good other times. So, so it's just a continuation of mind thinking. But eventually the mind stops thinking. And then we come to this place where there's no time and no place and no person. And, and there you are, you know. I'll stop there. So I'm a fan of afterlife and I'm a fan of, of heavens and hells. You know, I worked as a chaplain here at the uh, nursing home at Gilbertville. And uh, we were all actively dying, but the people at the nursing home were more actively dying than we are. And it was very interesting because the majority of the people there uh, were not Buddhist, but they had this incredible interest in what was going to happen to them. And some people wanted to go to heaven and it was very specific, you know, they, how they could get there and their own tradition and so forth. But others had a lot of questions about where they were going. And uh, it was interesting because when they found out I was a Buddhist, 
you know, I was the only Buddhist chaplain there. They would interrogate me about this, you know, life, uh, you know, rebirth forms and everything. And I never expected in my entire life to be asked by people who were dying, who were not of my tradition, but had somehow heard about all these crazy things that we Buddhists tend to think about and how much interest they had in it. And that. how sad it is they didn't have time to investigate it when they were healthy That's right. yeah. and young. So don't wait for death to come knocking on your door. You know, you want to have death as your co-pilot every day of your life. And it sounds really weird, but if death is your co-pilot, every day is a miracle, and every day is the best day you're ever going to have. And I think it doesn't have to be Buddha or anything, but that controversial philosopher, Martin Heidegger, used to say that the, the best way to live an authentic life was to anticipate death. And not only demise, but the existential nature of death. So I think that that's very important. Thank you. Thank you you all for taking time to come to hear me speak. I I was expecting nobody. What's the? Do you continue on this afternoon? No, I'm going right back to Koreatown and take a nap. At two o'clock, we have uh, Charles Tenson Fletcher Roshi, who is a uh, Japanese uh, Zen practitioner. He's the abbot of a 